Good morning. We'll be reading from Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 21. It can be found on page 586 in your pew Bible. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels moved beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. This is the word of the Lord. We were at the beach house at the Gwyns a few weeks ago, and uh, it's my favorite spot. One of our favorite things to do is to go to the end of the pier and just swing. And it was one of those beautiful days where it wasn't, uh, it wasn't not a cloud in the sky. There were many clouds in the sky, and they were all uh, billowy and everything, and it was beautiful. And we did what we do sometimes as we sit out there and swing, and we used our imaginations to see what was forming in the clouds, whether it was a famous person or a place or a thing. How many of y'all have ever done that with clouds? Looking up at clouds, and okay, most everybody. And you use your imagination and all. Well, some of us see cool things in clouds. Well, this morning we talk about a Jewish refugee who back on July 31st of 593 B.C., it is that specific, uh, this refugee saw a vision of God in a summer thunderstorm, a windstorm. Those occurred about five times each season in ancient Babylon. Let's put the first verse up, Jackie. This is Ezekiel 1.1. On July 31st of my 30th year, while I was with the Judean exiles beside the Kabar River in Babylon, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now, five years earlier, 597 BC, Ezekiel and 10,000 other 
Jewish refugees were taken into captivity at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar and were marched across the desert into what is today Iraq. And at some point five years later, on this very date, he saw a vision, and it is the longest recorded vision of God that you find in Scripture. And it's complex and intricate and mysterious. It's a strange thing. If you were really listening or reading along with the fields a moment ago, this is a strange, strange image. But the message is clear if you unpack it. God is Lord over all creation. He is present in all places. He is everywhere. He is on the move. And he, excuse me, is sovereign over all things. Ezekiel needed to hear this. Why? Well, he was going through a storm of losses himself. No doubt he was saying, is God here for me? Is God where I am now, now that I've been displaced? Sometimes we need an answer, most of all, when we are in a storm And God gives him quite an answer. And the answer is, I'm everywhere, and I'm sovereign, and I'm with you right now, and I'll never leave you. And in all of this that is happening, it will work for good. No doubt God makes that clear in all of Ezekiel's. Fifty times in the book of Ezekiel, he reminds Ezekiel and the people to whom Ezekiel prophesies, know that I am the Lord, know that I am the Lord. Fifty times in that book. And then Ezekiel receives this fascinating message in a cloud And Ezekiel tries to describe it, and he keeps saying, it's like this, it's like this. Fifteen times he says, it's like this. What he is saying is, my words are inadequate, woefully inadequate to describe really what I saw. I'm using the best I can with the language I know, with the imagery with which I'm familiar, but it's much more complex and mysterious than that. This is interesting. Through the history, Jews have respected this long vision of God described in Ezekiel so much that through the centuries, rabbis have recommended that people should not read it until they're 30 years old. True. Because it's just so hard to take in, and it's overwhelming. And just a fantastic, fantastic image. Now, why did Ezekiel need this vision to be reminded of God's presence? Well, he had experienced multiple losses. First of all, he lost his home. He's 25 years old. He's uprooted from his home. He's marched 700 miles across the desert, and that's all it was, was desert. He winds up at a refugee camp by the Kabar River, as it says there. Now, the Kabar River was a man-made irrigation canal. That's all it was, some small little irrigation canal. He's in the equivalent of a shanty house, we would call it today, that overlooks that ugly little canal. Where he is is in an area called Tel Aviv, and that area is built upon ancient cities and ruins all around. It really was kind of like the ghetto in that day, and that's where he finds himself. He is snatched from his home, taken over 700 miles to a strange place. Now, relocating is never easy. Uh, Every year, 40 million-plus Americans will relocate. It might be in the same town. It might be in a different state. It might be out of the country. Uh, Interestingly, uh, 30% of people aged 20 to 29 are going to relocate at some point. And it can happen to anyone due to uh, a job, uh, due to health, due to financial issues, due to divorce due to sudden loss, a lot of reasons, but, but any time you go through the transition of a relocation, it's difficult. You might be the new kid on the block. You might be an elderly person who's struggling with health issues, and you have to go to an unfamiliar place. And think about unfamiliar for Ezekiel. You know, he, because of an oppressive regime, he is stripped away from his home, his residence, 700 miles away going to a strange country in a poverty-stricken context. 
But his vision reminded him that wherever he was, God was with him as well. And he needed to hear that. He had lost his home. He also needed to hear this because he lost his job, obviously. But I would say not just his job, but his vocation. You see, Ezekiel was a priest and studying to be a priest. His father was a priest. He was a Levite. And so everything about his life and his livelihood was leading toward becoming a priest to assist at the temple of Jerusalem. But suddenly he's been stripped away from that. And here he finds himself in a shanty town staring at an ugly little canal. Some of us have had to deal with job change. Some of us have been downsized before, and it's tough, and it's a transition. Many people here, Mountain Brook is not at all immune, as we well know, to people who have had to lose jobs. And so there he is, and and here his very vocation is taken away from him. So he loses his vocation, he loses his home, and worst of all, he lost his beloved spouse. It's never easy to lose your loved one. You go to chapter 4, 15 in Ezekiel, and God tells him he's going to lose his wife, and sure enough, the next evening he does. She dies, and he faces grief like so many us have along the way. Think about this now. He's 30 years old, and he's stripped of three of the most important things in his life. Home, vocation, beloved spouse. Sometimes that's what it takes. You know, our losing something significant before God can really break through our pride or self-sufficiency or indifference or whatever it might be. And God sure gets Ezekiel's attention. He sees this windstorm. Again, those happened occasionally during the season, usually about five times. But in this one, he sees a chariot with a throne on it. Now, we're going to break this down. We don't have a whole lot of time. I wish we had a lot of time to do this, but we're going to just scratch the surface. But we need to see the bottom line message in this. So follow with me here. Uh, First of all, we're going to move from the lowest to the highest because that's the way Ezekiel presents it. From the lowest part of this vision where there are these strange creatures and then the wheels of the chariot and then the throne on top of the chariot where God resides. Let's go first of all to uh, verse 5 and verse 10. Verse 5 and 6 and 10. It says for this, From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except that each had four faces and four wings. Each had a human face in the front, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, the face of an eagle at the back. Already pretty weird, right? But what's the significance of it? What's the point of it? First of all, there are four of them. The number four in ancient Jewish literature and apocalyptic literature represents what? The world, the complete world, north, south, east, and west. So it was four. So you might already see what the message is, but it's really interesting if you study it more. There's the face of a man, and in the Old Testament, man was God's most exalted creation. And then there was the face of a lion, the most exalted wild beast in Old Testament times. And then there's the face of an ox, the most exalted domesticated animal, and then an eagle, the most exalted flying creature of that time. What is God saying already to Ezekiel? I am Lord over all of creation. I am sovereign over all things. I am Lord over all the complete earth. Okay, so it's speaking a lot to his sovereignty. Now let's go to verses 9 and 12. So, Jackie, next verse, verses. Each one moved straight forward. Now, this is interesting. Each one moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. They went in whatever direction the Spirit chose. I love that. It's kind of a precursor to our New Testament understanding of the Holy Spirit. They went in whatever direction the Spirit chose, and they moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. Wow. How do, how do you do that? And Ezekiel would say, I don't know. It's just what I saw. It was like that. It represents God being everywhere. 
He's ever-present, active in the world, on the move, powerful, energetic. He's actively present and actively in charge. And this whole image is magnified in the next verses. Uh, I think it's 13 and 14. Yeah, the living beings look like bright coals of fire or brilliant torches and lighting, lightning seemed to flash back and forth among them and the living beings darted to and fro like flashes of lightning. Again, it's this energetic, passionate, raw activity going on. can move in any direction at once because God is ever-present and is everywhere. Again, talking about his presence and activity in the world. So basically, again, you have these Four faces representing the entire world, and God is Lord over all that and always on the move and active in that context. But then he moves to the wheels. Let's go to verses 15 through 17. As I looked at these beings, I saw four wheels touching the ground beside them, one wheel belonging to each. The wheels sparkled as if made of, and some translations say barrels, some say topaz fields. I think yours was chrysolite. Yeah, it just depends. Basically, it's a bright yellow gemstone is what it means. So it's just bright and, and piercing in its, in its brightness. So the wheels sparkled as if made of barrel. All four wheels looked alike and were made the same. Go ahead. Now this is where it gets interesting. Each wheel had a second wheel turning crosswise within it. The beings could move in any of the four directions they faced without turning as they moved. Again, they could go wherever they wanted to go and didn't even have to turn. And you have these second wheels crosswise. And the best way I can describe it is that you had, had another wheel within the first wheel, and it was intersecting at right angles like a gyroscope. Have you ever seen a gyroscope? Kind of like that. That's what it looked like to him. So again, what is this saying? Well, the throne of God can move in any direction it wants to with the wheels turning immediately. So it can move anywhere immediately and purposefully. It's not bound by time or space or geography or location. It's saying that God is everywhere and can go wherever he wants to go all at one time. He's not limited by time or space, which is why Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, when he dedicates uh, the temple, he says, the highest heavens and the lowest earth cannot contain you, O Lord God. He's everywhere. He's sovereign. Now it gets even crazier. Go to the next one. This is verse 18, I think. The rims of the four wheels were tall and frightening, and they were covered with eyes all around. Sounds science fictionish, doesn't it? What's going on there? What is the significance of eyes in ancient Jewish literature and in apocalyptic literature? The eyes mean that God is not only omnipotent, obviously we see his omnipotence here, all-powerfulness, not only is he omnipresent, he is also omni omniscient, which means what? He sees all things, knows all things. That's what eyes represent. You go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, I believe it is, and it talks about Jesus uh, being seen by John in this vision. And John says, I saw the lamb, and he had seven eyes and seven horns. Now, did John literally see that? Well, we don't know for sure. What's the message behind it? That's what matters. Horns in the Old Testament always represent power. It's seven. Seven is the perfect number in Jewish thought, right? You probably know that. Why is that, by the way? I know some of you know this. Number four is the number for what? The earth. And number three in apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature means what? It's the number for God, which is cool because later on it becomes the Trinity. I don't know if that, I bet God planned it. But you put God and the world, the complete world together in harmony, you get what? Seven. That's why seven is the perfect, complete number in such literature. Okay, so you have um, this is image of Jesus with seven eyes and seven horns. The seven horns means he is perfectly powerful, completely powerful. The seven eyes means what? 
He sees perfectly. He sees all things. But let me say this because I think this is so cool. After Jesus, you know, you you had this image of God being all-knowing. But after Jesus, there was one thing that God chose not to know. You know what it is? It's the sins of those who repent. I think that's beautiful. In his sovereignty, God said, you know, after the death and resurrection of my son, if anyone will repent and come to me, I will literally remember their sins no more. Hebrews 10. Now, folks, is there a better gift of grace than that? An amazing, amazing gift. So he describes the creatures and these interesting wheels that speak to God's knowing all things and being all-powerful and always being present. And then finally he describes God, and he kind of takes time to get to God at the culmination of this incredibly long vision. Let's go to uh, verse 26 and following. It says, Above this surface was something that looked like a throne made of blue lapis lazuli. That just means just a brilliant blue like the blue gemstone. And on this throne high above was a figure whose appearance resembled a man All around him was a glowing halo like a rainbow shining in clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. Now again, there's fire all around, and and there's this shining splendor it talks about, goes on to describe. But there's that beautiful rainbow that's encompassing the whole image. It reminds you of Genesis 9, when for Noah, God puts the, what does he say? I will set my bow in the clouds, the rainbow was a sign of protection back then, like a bow and arrow. I will protect you, I will never leave you, I will always shield you from harm and from the evil one. I will always, always do that. Now, take this vision as a whole, and let me just ask you, how would you respond to a vision like this if you saw this in a cloud one day? You know, you see a ducky and a horsey, and then, oh, hello. How would you respond? Probably like Ezekiel, go to the next verse, latter part of verse 28, It says, when I saw it, I fell face down on the ground, and I heard someone's voice speaking to me. Now, it would be bad enough to see this vision, and then you hear a voice. Reminds me so much of Isaiah's call in Isaiah chapter 6. What does he do? He falls on his face when he has this overwhelming sense of the glory of God. But I think this is beautiful. You go to the very next verse, which starts chapter 2. What does the voice say? Stand up, son of man, said the voice. I want to speak with you. Isn't that great, by the way? God doesn't want us to grovel. He wants to have relationship with us. He wants to speak with us, wants to be with us. The Spirit came into me as he spoke, and he, isn't this great, set me on my feet. I listened carefully to his words. When God comes to us, we need not be fearful. He is there issuing forth his love each and every moment. It reminds me of Paul, Damascus Road. Acts chapter 9, he has that vision of Jesus, and he falls to the ground, and Jesus says, why do you persecute me? But then in the next breath, he says, okay, get up, dust yourself off, go into the city of Damascus, I'll, I'll be with you and tell you what to do next. Again, he doesn't want us to grovel. He wants to have relationship with us. And I'm glad Ezekiel's image is not the only vision we have of God. We have it different ways. Moses had the burning bush. Ezekiel had his. Isaiah had his. What's so amazing is you and I have the vision of Jesus and who he is based on what we know in biblical revelation, that's the best. Because we really do meet God in Christ, and he reminds us that through it all, the joyful moments and the trials, he's with us, even in the days that are darkest and the days that are brightest, including the days that are darkest. Reminds me of Gardner Taylor, who really is the the prince of African-American preachers of the last hundred years. Years ago, during the Great Depression, 
He was preaching in a small church uh, down in Louisiana, and uh, he said it was that, that the whole church house was lit by one dangling light bulb. But he was in the middle of his sermon, just going to it, and all of a sudden, the electricity went out, and he said it was pitch black. And he said, I was a young preacher, I didn't know what to say, and I kind of stumbled around for a while, and I was getting embarrassed. He said, finally, a deacon in the back just stood up and shouted, preach on, preacher, we can still see Jesus in the dark. <clears throat> and that's a great gift for you and me. We can still see him in the dark when our days are dark. And the greater gift of grace is he sees us in the dark. He's not going anywhere. He can turn whenever he wishes. He's always there in all of his weight of glory, always there for us. And won't it be cool when we see him face to face? I'm going to close with a story. Go back to verse 28. I think that's the last one. Let me just read it one more time. All around him was a glowing halo like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. Uh, there have been a few times where I've really sensed the overwhelming glory of God. One of them happened last summer, and I share this partly because we have some young people who just came back from this place, but I remember when we were on the mission trip last summer to uh, Cape Town, South Africa, and uh, we went the second Sunday to Masafumalele Baptist Church. Did you guys go? Are any seniors in here? Did you guys go this time, Caleb? Um, an amazing church. You go, you go into Masafumalele, which means we will succeed, <clears throat> but you wonder about that because it was, it's a shanty township that was built originally for 5,000 people. Now there are near 28,000 people living in it. And it's just heart-wrenching when you walk in and, and you see um, the intensity of the poverty and the chaos there and everything. But then you go into Masafumalele Baptist Church, and I'll never forget, we stood toward the back and began worshiping, and the music there, was it incredible again this time? It's absolutely incredible. And uh, I was standing in the back, and dear Franzi, who's kind of our overall assistant guy who drives the van and everything, who's just, he, he loves Brookwood. He's never even been here, but he so deeply loves Brookwood. And he came back and he said, Pastor, this is where you go forward to speak. I hadn't planned on that. And uh, so I go to the front, and they kept on singing for a while, so I turned around, and y'all, I just watched. And, and there's this marvelous congregation of, of you know, wrenchingly poor people dressed in their best clothes and just singing to the glory of God like I've never heard. The harmony and all is just astounding. And, and, and interwoven with those people are our own people. I remember seeing, you know, looking out and seeing Caleb and Robin Ham and, and uh, the Davises and all these other people. I just thought, oh my gosh, you know. And I remember looking out a window and seeing the intensity of that shanty town, just like Ezekiel when he was by the Kabar River. And I remember seeing the poverty out the window, and then I'll never forget this. I don't know if you saw it, Caleb. I know Bill Watt and other people saw it. All of a sudden, this rainbow just showed up, encompassing that church. And there's this incredible music going on. And I thought, this is the kingdom right here. And I'll never forget that moment and, and realizing, you know, in the long run, I thought of that Koza title, Masafumalele. One day we will succeed in spite of the injustice and poverty that you see out there. That rainbow reminded me, hey, I'm here. You don't have to have an Ezekiel-type vision, but that vision was great for me. It reminded me of his presence. You know, another wonderful way we can have a vision of God's presence is to partake of this right here. I'd like to ask for the deacons to come forward. What better way for us to have a visual image of the presence of Christ with his body and his blood 
than by celebrating the Lord's Supper. The Eucharist, as Catholicism calls it so aptly, the celebration of the good gift is what that word means. And so as we enter into this, I'd like for us to prepare our hearts, and I just want you to close your eyes for just a moment. And we don't need to say much. I just want to invite you to become aware of God's presence right now. He is so present here right now. Just do that if you would and and relish this moment of his presence in your life, the spirit within you. And then we will prepare ourselves for the meal.